Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the PQI podcast. This week, we sit down with Joanna Morales and Amy Terhune to discuss navigating insurance and how triage cancer can help. Joanna is a cancer rights attorney and the CEO of Triage Cancer, a national nonprofit organization providing free education on practical and legal issues that impact individuals diagnosed with cancer and their caregivers through events, materials, and resources. Amy is a prior authorization supervisor at Florida Cancer Specialist and Research Institute and an expert in obtaining prior authorizations for complex oral oncolytic medications. So thank you so much, Joanna and Amy, for joining us on the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you two fabulous ladies here. So Joanna, you are from a great organization called Triage Cancer, and we have Amy from Florida Cancer Specialists on the practice side of things. So to start, will you please both introduce yourselves and give us an overview of your current roles? And we will start with Joanna. Thank you, Ginger. I'm very happy to be here with you both. Uh, my name is Joanna Morales, and I'm the CEO of Triage Cancer, uh, but I'm also a cancer rights attorney, and that actually always surprises people. They are not familiar with that there's an area of law referred to as cancer rights, and it really covers all the legal issues that come up after a cancer diagnosis, but mostly issues that people don't think of as legal issues. So things like accessing health insurance coverage and figuring out how to navigate that coverage. Thank you. Yes, I have been in oncology for quite a while and didn't really realize that there was such a thing as a cancer rights attorney. So I think that is so needed and amazing. And I'm excited to talk about the work that you're doing. And then Amy. Hi, thank you for having me. My name is Amy Terhune. I'm a prior authorization supervisor at Rx2Go, which is the in-house pharmacy at Florida Cancer Specialist. Our team is responsible for submitting all the prior authorizations for the oral oncolytics and supportive drugs for FCS. Wonderful. Thank you, Amy. You all have quite the quite the pharmacy operation there, and I know that you just do such a wonderful job as as a best practice for everyone in, in serving patients. So thank you. And then I would love to know more about triage cancer, Joanna. So how did you come into existence? Well, it's sort of a long and winding story, but really came from the idea that there is a huge need for education around the legal topics that people need to navigate after a diagnosis. And myself and our co-founder, Monica Bryant, who is a COO and also a cancer rights attorney, had been working for many years in the cancer community, providing education on cancer-related legal issues. And we really felt like there was a huge gap in the cancer community where there needed to be access to free education on these topics so that people are proactively prepared to navigate these systems uh, but also have the information that they need that they can make educated decisions. Unfortunately, many of the systems that people have to navigate, whether it's insurance or work or disability benefits or even estate planning, 
many of those systems are sort of set up to walk all over you if you don't have the information and are prepared to ask questions uh, to best get the things that you need. And so ultimately, triage was formed to prepare prepare people with that information. Wonderful. And you all are a nonprofit, right? So all of this education is no cost. Yes. So everything that we offer to the cancer community and really beyond is free of charge. That is wonderful. Um, and I know on some of the issues, one of, one of the first I would like to talk about, I know many of our members deal with it daily, um, but you mentioned already navigating insurances. So I would love to hear first Amy's um, issues from the practice and what she finds with problems in navigating insurance and then then have Joanna speak on you know what you all find and what you all can do to help as well. Well, of course, all medications require a prior authorization just because of the cost of it. That's a huge issue. So once we obtain the prior authorization and it's approved, now it's the getting the cost covered and how can we do that for the patient? Mm -hmm whether it be with foundations and grants or free assistance from the manufacturer. Um, but that's that's the main daily issue with insurance. Thank you. Yes, o over and over again. Um, and Joanna, what, what do you find on prior offs and insurance issues in general? I think the number one issue related to navigating insurance for the patients that we deal with is understanding all of your health insurance options. And so we find that many people after being diagnosed experience some sort of change in their situation that makes them have to figure out what insurance they're going to get next. So whether it's losing or leaving a job or someone's decided to retire and wants to understand their Medicare options or their employer plan doesn't actually cover the care that they need. So it's really making sure that people know that there are lots of options that might be available to them and that they can understand those options and then be able to make educated comparisons among those options to figure out the best plan for them. And I think that this also comes up when someone is really underinsured, where they have very high out-of-pocket costs um, or that it, their plan doesn't cover their providers or their drugs. And so making sure that people know, even if they have an inadequate plan right now, they can make changes to their plan moving forward so they don't continue to incur those huge out-of-pocket costs. What are some of the key insurance terms that you find that most people don't know that impact out-of-pocket costs? Yeah, so that's actually interesting because there's data that shows that 96% of all Americans don't actually know the four key terms that are used in health insurance. And those terms are deductible, copayment, coinsurance, and out-of-pocket maximum. And so we might all use those terms pretty frequently in the work that we do, but the average consumer 
is not exposed to them at all. And if people don't understand those terms, it's almost impossible to make educated decisions about the health insurance options that are available. And so we really feel like it's a key part to making sure you're picking the right health insurance plan. But we also know that having inadequate health insurance coverage is the number one reason that people incur financial toxicity um, and are experiencing that financial burden. So for us, we spend a lot of time teaching people about those four key terms uh, and making sure that people understand how they actually work related to their health insurance coverage so that they know how to use their policy, but also how to make educated decisions down the road. Thank you. Yes. I, I remember from the practice that that was always an issue. And I, I would love to hear from Amy too. Do you all find that you're having to really explain to a lot of patients, you know, what, what exactly their deductible means, what out of pocket, all of, what all of those terms means and how, how are are you educating patients in the practice? We hear a lot of patients talking about the donut hole, which is also the coverage gap. So when you go over the initial coverage gap, you'll most likely pay 25% of the covered meds. If you roughly hit about $7,500. So those terms plus the catastrophic coverage we have to explain how that with their copay affects them. So Joanna, are you are you hearing the same? Do you hear donut hole a lot? And do you all get questions on that? Yes, absolutely. So I think Amy brings up a really great point that the terms that are important for people to know are going to depend on the type of insurance that they have. So the donut hole and catastrophic coverage are terms that are specific to Medicare. So if you don't have Medicare, then you don't have to worry about those terms. But for patients that do have Medicare, that's critical to understanding your drug coverage. And that most people don't understand that even if they have a Part D plan, they're going to have a separate drug deductible. Then they have to pay 25% of those uh, drug costs until they reach that approximate $7,400, $7,500 amount. And then they're going to pay 5% of their prescription drug costs until the end of the year. And that's actually something that's going to change next year. That catastrophic coverage amount of 5% for the remainder of the year is going to go away, which will be hugely beneficial for patients that have those very high drug costs on Medicare. Yes, yes. I, I can't believe it's finally happening and it, it might finally be go, be going away forever, maybe, perhaps. Yes. We, um, we keep our fingers crossed on that one. And then in 2025, it will, the out-of-pocket costs for patients on Medicare with Part D plans will drop to $2,000 in entirety, which is even more amazing. Yes, great, great news for patients for sure. And then I know Amy mentioned that prior authorizations and, and getting the oral approved on her end are some of their biggest hurdles, but will you please talk more about prior authorizations, step therapy, exception requests, and appeals, Joanna? Yes, I think that, you know, we often say that 
having health insurance that is adequate is really just the first step and that you really need to understand how to use your insurance effectively. And all the things you mentioned are part of understanding how to use your plan. And so knowing that you actually have to get permission from your insurance company before you get care or before you get access to certain prescription drugs, most people don't realize that. Uh, and so knowing that they have that responsibility, if they want their insurance company to pay for their care, is like a secret because insurance companies don't give you a list of all the things that you have to go and get prior authorization for. And so we encourage patients that every time they're going to get care or a prescription drug that they check to make sure they don't need prior authorization. And, you know, Amy has an amazing role where she helps navigate that process for patients every day, but not everybody has access to someone like Amy. And so some healthcare professionals will do that on behalf of patients, uh, but ultimately it's the patient's responsibility to make sure that they're getting the prior authorization if the insurance company is going to pay for their care. And then, you know, insurance companies often are trying to minimize what they're paying for care. And so they have processes like step therapy, where patients have to try less expensive uh, or generic drugs before they can get access to brand name or more expensive drugs, even if the brand name drug is what was prescribed by their doctor. And so again, that's a place where patients need to realize that they have some rights and some options uh, if they need access to a specific drug. And that's where those exception requests come in. So patients can actually file a request with their insurance company for an exception. So it might be an exception for getting access to a brand name drug. It might be an exception where uh, a patient is asking to uh, treat a particular drug as if it's on a lower tier of their formulary. So they would have lower out-of-pocket costs for that drug. So that exception process is important for patients to realize is there, but most people don't know. And I think that that is even more of a problem when you get to the appeals process. It's not uncommon for patients to experience a denial of coverage by their insurance company at some point during their care, where the insurance company says, we're not going to pay for that. And there is an internal appeals process where you can go back to the insurance company and ask them to reconsider. Uh, and if we're talking about private insurance, so whether it's an individual or an employer plan, the insurance company, if they still say no, uh, has to allow you to go to an external appeals process where you get to go outside the insurance company to an independent entity uh, and they decide whether or not the care is medically necessary. And if they do, that decision is binding on the insurance company. Now, I often talk about the external appeals process as the best kept secret of our healthcare system because 99.9% .9 of claims are not even appealed to the internal appeals process, let alone to the external appeals process, even though when patients actually get to that external appeals process, they're successful on average 50% of the time. So when we're talking about 
the burden on patients and that financial toxicity uh, and access to care issues, the appeals process is a huge contributor to all of those problems because all of those patients that aren't filing appeals are either not getting access to the care prescribed by their healthcare team or they're paying for it out of pocket when their insurance company probably should have been. So that's only contributing to financial toxicity. So understanding how all of these um, rules and systems within our healthcare system work and with insurance is really key for patients to understand so that they can get access to the care that they need and really minimize that financial burden. Yes, yes, for sure. And I, ha I have a couple of follow-up questions to that. Um, so one is for Amy, and are you all finding a lot of appeals necessary? And I guess, how, how are you assisting patients with those when they are necessary? And then I have another question for Joanna, too. But. Well, we will reach out to the physician and ask for a letter of medical necessity to submit with the appeal. That obviously helps the appeal process. We also will get a signed authorization form, AOR form, by the patient. Some insurance companies require that, that we are able to appeal on their behalf. We will also look for clinical trial data or clinical articles to help our submission process. Okay, wonderful. And do you all find that that is successful a good amount of the time, or are you still getting denials um, even with that appeal? In 2022, we've won over 60% of our appeals. That's great. That's great. I, I would say, um, <laughs> considering, considering all things considered. Yes. And then how long, and, and I have this for you, how long is that internal appeal process usually taking you all? And then for Joanna, I'm curious about that external appeal because I hear, I hear that and I feel like it sounds like it could take forever. Um, but Amy, how long are the appeals usually taking for your group? The internal appeals are up to three business days. We have seen that some take 14 days, two weeks. And we've also processed external appeals, which take up to 30 to 60 days. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And then Joanna, what are you seeing on your end? So there are timelines. Um, for the internal and external appeals process, I would say sort of generally across um, all types of plans and processes, generally it's about 60 days. Um, however, if someone is in a situation where they need access to care that is going to have an impact on their health, um, so that it is urgent that they get access to that medical care, they can actually file an expedited appeal. And they can even file the internal and the external appeal at the same time as an urgent appeal and get a response back within 72 hours. So there are rules about how quickly responses are coming back. And sometimes it depends on whether or not someone is filing an appeal for care that they haven't received yet versus care that they've already received. And then they're just uh, fighting with the insurance company about coverage for that care. Okay, good, good to know. Thank you. And then what is the importance of proactively communicating options to lower out-of-pocket costs to patients? So things like 
drug cards, um, savings programs, extra help, pr private assistance programs. And we'll we'll start with Joanna, and then I would like to hear what what Amy, what your practice is doing as well. Well, I think that patients really have no idea that these programs are available and they don't know what they don't know. So they're unlikely to ask questions about these assistance programs because they don't know that there are questions even to be asking. And that's why it's so important to proactively share this information with patients because really we don't want anyone to not get access to the care that they need. And the way that this plays out on a practical level is that patients go to pick up a prescription at the pharmacy and then they find out what their copay is or that there's been a denial and they're going to have to pay out of pocket if they want access to that drug. And so if they can't afford to pay those costs, they're likely to walk away from the pharmacy without picking up that prescription and, and taking the drugs that obviously they need or else they wouldn't have been prescribed those drugs. And so that's really where... Um, there is an opportunity to share with patients proactively if they seem concerned about the cost of their drugs, that there are these programs available to help offset some of those costs. And do you all have um, like a section on your website or how could patients find out about this or where, where could a practice? So and I'll, we'll, we'll get to Amy in just a minute because I know having a medically integrated pharmacy is huge and this is one of the benefits, but let's say someone doesn't or they're not um, fully staffed right now, where can practices direct patients to find out about these programs? So we do have a page on our website. Uh, if you go to cancerfinances.org, which is a tool that we provide where People can pick a topic like paying for prescription drugs and then start to answer some questions about their situation and it guides people to the information that is most relevant to them. But on that module around paying for prescription drugs, we do have a chart that lists all of the pharmaceutical companies that have assistance programs for a variety of different drugs and then the contact information for those assistance programs. So not only do we have information around the assistance programs provided by pharmaceutical companies, but also private foundations and other organizations, uh, and then specific to Medicare, uh, we do have a Medicare module on cancer finances that talks about access to prescription drugs and whether or not someone might qualify for the extra help program to offset some of those prescription drug costs. And then we do also have a partnership with Needy Meds where we have a drug discount card that may lower your co-payments for prescription drugs, but you won't know that until you actually go to the pharmacy to find out what your copay would be using that drug card. Okay, wonderful, thank you. And then Amy, um, I know like Encoda has a tool that's more practice facing with all of the industry um, copay cards and if certain medications have something available. But I know that's one of the really big benefits that having the medically integrated pharmacy provides. So how are you all proactively um, offering these programs to patients? So the prior authorization team is actually responsible for offering the drug copay card. 
once we get the approval, we will run the test claim. And if it comes back with a payable claim and a drug uh, copay card is available, we will call the patient and offer that to them. Even if their copay is $10, we will offer the copay card. That way they have a $0 balance. That's great. And then about the patient assistance programs, are you all um, proactively helping patients get set up for those? Yes. With our practice with Medicare patients, anything that is over $100, we send to our patient assistance team and they will contact the patient to start the paperwork to find out what their income is, to see if there's any foundations open, if there's free drug from the manufacturer, depending on, again, what their income is with the household. Wonderful. Thank you. That's a, such a valuable service that you guys provide. And then what do our oncology teams need to know about making changes to insurance coverage? So I think this is this is one area I know when I was in the pharmacy, it was always a little confusing. Um, how do patients pick a plan to lower out-of-pocket costs? That's for Joanna. At Triage Cancer, we talk a lot about how the math matters whenever you're making choices about insurance or even about work or retiring or applying for disability, that you really have to do the math to figure out what the financial impact is going to be. Uh, and so when that comes to how to pick a plan with the lowest out-of-pocket costs, we use a simple formula where you take the monthly premium of the plan that you're looking at and you multiply it by 12 because that's how much it's gonna cost you to have the plan for the year. And then you add that to the out-of-pocket maximum. And that's gonna be the most that you're gonna pay out-of-pocket for your medical expenses during the year. So that should give you a pretty good sense of your total cost for your health insurance plus any out-of-pocket costs that might come up. Unfortunately, most people just pick a plan based on the monthly premium because they don't know how out-of-pocket maximums work. And if someone is healthy and never goes to get any medical care, they might not want to pick that plan because they're not likely to tap into their out-of-pocket maximum. But when we're talking to someone who's been diagnosed with cancer, they didn't know ahead of time that they're going to be diagnosed. And so we sometimes forget that Insurance is in case something happens. Uh, and so if someone doesn't have adequate insurance before being diagnosed, they are likely to have those higher out-of-pocket costs. But again, that is something that they could change moving forward. So the next time they can make changes to their plan, which is usually during an open enrollment period, then they have an opportunity to make different decisions and lower their out-of-pocket costs moving forward. Okay, great. It's good to know that they do have the option eventually to be able to change. And then I know you've already talked about a lot of the resources, Joanna, but what resources um, does triage cancer have to help and any, any other resources you think it's important for us to know about? One of the, the biggest programs that we have are our educational events. 
which are all free uh, and provide continuing education for some professionals for free. So those events are open to patients and caregivers, but we do also have some programs that are specific for healthcare professionals and advocates and other members of the healthcare system so that they are better aware of this information to help best navigate patients through these issues. In addition to our educational events, we also have a plethora of materials and resources available on our website at triagecancer.org. And then the other big program that we have available is our legal and financial navigation program, where people can actually make appointments to talk with our team to get one-on-one -on -one assistance to understand their health insurance options, deal with issues at work or disability benefits or managing finances or any of the other potential cancer-related legal issues that might come up for people. So those are the key services that we provide at Triage Cancer for free. That is fantastic. So, so someone like Amy, if they had a patient that really um, needed some extra help, could refer them to your program and get get some of that consultation for free. Absolutely. So we have patients and other organizations in the cancer community refer people to us directly, but sometimes they even contact us on behalf of patients and caregivers. That is great to know. Thank you. And we'll link to your website and, and any other resources you would like to send, we can link in the show notes. So the final fun question, and I'll have both of you answer, and may maybe whoever comes up with their answer first can go first. Um, so we have a new question for season five, but if you could give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would that be? Say yes. Oh, I like it. <laughs> we say yes to everything that you that. can to yes oh oh I love it that's a good slogan I think that's a great one I was thinking along the same lines I was thinking uh take advantage of the all of the opportunities that are presented to to you I love it. I think that's that's the theme of the day, evidently, is yes, yes, and saying yes to the opportunity. So great, great pieces of advice from both of you. And thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And I just am so excited about the wonderful work that you're both doing on behalf of patients. So thank you for that. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of the PQI podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Joanna and Amy. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and on encoda.org. That's encoda.org. You can also find us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We hope you tune in next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.